Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Uri, I'm sure as an avid reader of ESPN.com, you saw the article that came out last week about the YU boys basketball team. I actually did not. Okay, well, that is shocking. Can you I fill can me in? What your shortcuts are on Chrome? Sure, yeah. I mean, it was a good article. It was very long. Like, I was actually really kind of like, it was pretty crazy for like, you would never think that like ESPN is going to be doing this like major profile on the YU boys basketball team. Especially, it was on, it was particularly focused on the uh, the best player uh, who, his name is Ryan Terrell. He's mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you've been to any games, but he's like Not the recently. tall blonde boy. Mm-hmm. He's very, very, very good. Um, but it was interesting because as listeners of Talking Tachlis know, of course, um, a few months ago, there was this kind of pretty explosive rape allegation against one of the basketball players. Uh, it's anonymous. We still don't know who it was. And honestly, we don't know what's happened and what's going on with the whole thing. You can listen to our past episode uh, to to you know, hear more about that story. Um, but it definitely made me feel weird. The, the ESPN article did not mention the allegations or any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know if they should have. I honestly felt conflicted reading it. Like, it's an allegation. Like, maybe that would be inappropriate or distracting. But I don't know. Like, if something more came out that it was much more beyond an allegation, then that article would be really tainted. I, I don't know. I, I felt a little conflicted reading it. Yeah. I mean, I get why you would feel weird. That's understandable. But given that everything is anonymous, the the woman who did the accusation herself is anonymous and the person she's accusing is anonymous. And she says herself that she never went to the police about it. I don't know if it's really fair to now cast the entire basketball team in doubt or in a negative light because of something that can't even be, you can't even question the guy and ask him for his side of the story. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not questioning the accusation. I'm just saying, I don't know where that leaves us and what, how much you're supposed to, you know, take away from it. Yeah, it's a fair question. I don't know exactly the best way to do it. I still think that maybe, like, the more I think about it, the more I feel like ESPN especially because there are no names involved. So it's not like they're really casting aspersions on a particular person. Well, it's everybody what, because it could be any of them. Sure, but it, but then it's equally weak, right? So if ESPN's, you know, in- included a one-paragraph thing saying, this is, we really don't know so much about it, it's totally, completely allegations, you know, but there is this sort of ongoing mini-whatever, I think it would have been kind of a good thing. Like, I don't know, I'm just imagining if I were her, right, and I, I saw this story and there's like, it's glowing. I mean, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be glowing, right? Like, I, again, like, this is one bad apple, presumably, except I think that the original story was more complicated than that. But but either way, I don't know. I, I did feel a little bit mm-hmm. and still feel like maybe ESPN could have sh- could have and should have included that. But um, I would know, guess they just didn't know about it. That would be my guess. Oh, really? Oh, I've, I would imagine that it was a decision. But I, I'm maybe, not sure. I have maybe. no idea. All right. I'll have to contact ESPN. Or mm-hmm. you know what? I imagine they have people listening. Probably. So, uh, yeah, so the, I'm sure they'll do an amendment of some sort. But why you, they, the, the season started uh, about two weeks ago, and they are 4-0, and so they are continuing their Off streak from last start. year. Yeah, right. and I, again, like, I was actually just, you know, talking to some people about this, because we were talking about going to see uh, a game soon, and I felt weird about it, and I felt bad that I felt weird about it, because I don't know how to feel. Mm. Um, I don't know, Uri, should we go to a game? I'm down, yeah. 
I'm sure there are people who are Dafka not going, who are specifically not going because of this. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, continuing story. Much like Ben and Jerry's, we will be talking about it consistently. No, probably not. Well, why don't we get into this week's topic? Perfect. There was an article in last week's New York Times magazine, the November 7th, issue, and the title of the article was Generation Exodus, and the subtitle is, Support for Israel has long been a pillar of American Judaism, but younger Jews have begun to question it, creating a deep rift in the community. And this article is written by Mark Tracy. So before I even give a summary of the article, it's funny how these things go, because I'm actually looking at the actual magazine, the physical New York Times magazine, and that was the title that I have. But Rifki, I think you have, you were reading the online version. Hold on, version. I just have to call you out that you read, that means you subscribe to the New York well, Times. Well, it's my parents, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, I didn't know they were anti-Israel. Okay, now I know. That's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah, that was a big admission right now, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting because I'm looking at the online version and the article is called Inside the Unraveling of American Zionism. And then underneath it says how a new generation of Jewish leaders began to rethink their support for Israel. So it's mm-hmm. interesting how they change these things. Mine sounds very drastic. Unraveling. Right, like, right. Whew. More drastic. Um, yeah. yeah, and by the way, just to defend, you know, our subscription to the New York Times, if we don't get the New York <laughs> Times, how else am I going to know what to be angry about? That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Yeah. So in, in terms of the article itself, um, so the part about young Jews um, being either apathetic or actually more cr- just critical um, of Israel is definitely not new. And we've talked about it on the show before, specifically about um, If Not Now, which is a movement of young Jews who uh, are critical of like the way they were taught about Israel and critical of the way that their peers and their parents relate to Israel. What I think was a little bit more new and interesting in this article was the the next step was of saying that not only are these younger Jews um, more critical, more engaged with Israel, but in a critical way, most of the Jews or actually all of the people that they discuss and quote in the article are actually studying to be rabbis or cantors. Um, None of them are orthodox, but they're all in either conservative or reform or other rabbinic schools. And what these young people are expressing is that their criticism of Israel is coming from a religious place, that they are actually using their conception of their religiosity and their Judaism, and that is informing their views on Israel. And that is a little bit more new and to me interesting and something that warrants discussion and thought. And in fact, the jumping off point of the article and the focus of a lot of the article is a specific open letter that was written during the May conflict last spring and was signed by, I think, 90 of these rabbinic students, which is a large, a a decent percentage of all the rabbinic students um, in these institutions. Um, And so there was the letter itself, which was, which we'll get into, but was very, very critical of Israel's actions and, and the occupation in Israel in general. 
as well as the responses to the letter, which were not as focused on in the article, but were mentioned. The, the most notable um, response or rebuttal to this letter being from Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artsin, who is the dean of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, which is a Jewish seminary in Los Angeles. So why don't we just jump right in? Um, Rifki, what were your overall thoughts and impressions of this article? Oh boy. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I remember when the letter came out um, and it felt like, you know, sort of typical for how these things go. It's like it gets a lot of flurry on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, you have people being like, oh, amazing. You have people like, this is the worst thing in the world. And then 48 hours later, you literally feel like, did I dream this? Because as dramatic as everyone seemed to be in their reactions, no one cares anymore. Hmm. This what this article. I did you think, was did you really personally know any of the people who signed the letter? Was that something that you yeah, looked yeah. at? Yeah, uh-huh. looking through the looking through the, I didn't know about the letter beforehand, but looking through the list, I definitely recognized a bunch of names, including a few people that I'm friends with, friendly with, um, and which is interesting because it definitely felt to me like the letter was kind of extreme. But we can also talk about our personal reflections on the letter. But I actually didn't think it was as. I didn't think it was as either as incredible or as crazy as I thought. I mean, you know how social media works. People well, aren't going to post can, can unless they the find bull- it yeah. extremely amazing or extremely awful. Rifki, so, do you want to do give some of the bullet points of what was actually in the letter? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, first of all, I think the, the tone was really interesting. It was very much written from a tone of, and I think they use this word over and over, they talk about uh, kind of feeling emotional, like, mm-hmm. oh, we are crying about what's happening in the Holy Land. It was almost like Eicha, um, like a lamentation. Right, I think they actually quoted Eicha, yeah, right? I think yeah. they actually, yeah, 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 I'm looking at it now, yeah. Um, and the letter talks about the heartbreak with the injustice. And I, I think, at least for me, as I'm reading it, I don't exactly know what they're gonna say like they say like each new injustice and we experience heartbreak over and over and i'm like okay okay um and then it goes into talking about how american jews recently have been a big part of the racial reckoning in america and jewish communities kind of thinking about racial justice and then it transitions to saying and although so many jewish institutions are concerned with racial justice and thinking about racial justice in america they are silent and ignoring the quote, abuse of power and racist violence that's erupting in Israel and Palestine. And it, then it goes into more details about the day-to-day pain that the Israeli military and police enact on Palestinians, that Israel upholds two legal systems. They definitely use the language of apartheid. Uh, they talk about uh, heartbreak, that heartbreak is actually necessary, and then there's action that's demanded, and that we who care about Israel have a responsibility to demand better. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, the, the uh, particular examples are that when we American Jews give money, we have to make sure we're giving money to organizations that are doing the correct, um, that are doing political advocacy, and political advocacy that is that they agree with yeah political advocacy mm-hmm. um political advocacy too often and i'll quote them directly puts forth a narrative of victimization but supports violent suppression of human rights and enables apartheid in the palestinian territories and the threat of annexation meaning so much jewish advocacy in israel is really ruining palestinians lives more and more and more every day 
Um, so that's basically, I think, the the crux of the letter. So, and just to be fair, one more thing: explain why. Yeah, well, I'll just say it's it's not it's it's important to know what the letter said. But the one thing I'll add to that is what the letter did not say, which is that it did not criticize Hamas or the Palestinians in any way, shape, or form in terms of specifically saying it. You could say it was implied because of the heartbreak and the conflict, but it didn't actually say that anywhere in the letter. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Well, also, but. At the same time, and I'm not saying I'm not saying what they what they did was appropriate or inappropriate, mm-hmm. but this letter was geared towards American Jews and saying to American Jews, you have a responsibility at this point to reject what we think what what mainstream sort of American Judaism has been doing now for for decades. You have a responsibility to do something different and to put your energies into doing something different. Just like we're going through this racial reckoning in America, you have to recognize that these evils are being perpetuated in our name and with our money against Palestinians, and you have to fight that. So it would be weird to focus on Hamas in such a letter. And I'm not saying, well, uh, meaning like that, that. I don't know about that. It's weird well, to acknowledge. Do you think American that, Jews are giving well, money was, to institutions that are supporting Hamas? No, I mean, I think the point was, my point there, and the point of many others, was that this was an oversimplification of the conflict to the point of it being dangerously oversimplified. And so what a lot of the responses said, and I want to read parts of um, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson's response, but saying that, like, I too care very much about the Palestinians and human rights, but to ignore the violations on the other side is just to lose the whole sense of grasp on reality. And that's it's no longer helpful to bring positive change when you are ignoring such a blatant, uh, you know, you have such a blatant omission there. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. Basically, I think one of the reasons that that he and that many others, including me, felt really uncomfortable reading the letter was actually less about what the letter said. I actually think, and I'm er- I'm curious to hear what you think here, mm-hmm. but reading the letter, I didn't feel like anything they said, yeah, fine, I didn't maybe love certain language, like apartheid, for example. There are specific things I didn't love about the letter, but overall, it's not that I disagreed with the letter. The general ideas of the letter, I do kind of agree with, and I think so do many, many, many people. But I think there are a couple things, and I think the Dean of Ziegler who wrote, I think what he wrote was, was really powerful and felt really strong to me. But I, I think he, what he was basically saying, and I think what many of us think is there's something that feels uncomfortable to us. Again, not about the content of the letter, but A, we don't like feeling like it's slanted. We don't, B, we don't feel like it's kind of appropriate for Jews to be publicly criticizing Jews like airing dirty laundry or maybe like, you know, breaking up like we're all supposed to all be a family, Ahavat Israel, like all those things. See, the rest of the world does enough of that already. Like right, right now, there's there's anti-Semitism. You know, I don't know if we've mentioned that in, you know, talking talkas recently, but anti-Semitism <laughs> definitely does seem to be an issue. Um, and definitely in the middle of May, as this conflict was going on, there was a lot of anti-Israel sentiment in a way that, definitely made those of us who don't feel that way a little bit uncomfortable. And for this to come out publicly during that time was a little bit like a, you know, et tu brute kind of moment where we felt like this betrayal was coming from the inside. So it's not to me that the letter was so egregious. It's more like the context around the letter that felt really, really hurtful to, I think, many people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think I'm one of those people. I think I definitely felt like this letter does not have to be the worst thing in the world. 
it's not how I would have written it, but I don't think that what they said was so crazy. So, Uri, right. I want to hear your well, thoughts. Okay, I, I want to talk about the letter, and then I also want to move on to the to the broader things discussed in the sure. article. In terms of the letter itself, yes, it upset me. I, I honestly think I have gotten a lot better in the last few years. At I've gotten as a staunch supporter of Israel. I have gotten better at... You get the New York Times, Eric. Well, I've gotten better at being able to hear and listen to criticism of Israel and Mm -hmm. take it seriously and then then really engage with it instead of just lashing out and um, shutting down when I hear that. But at the same time... Wait, hold on. I just want to acknowledge that. That's really hard to do. Like, that's really cool. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but yeah, thank you. I mean, it is hard. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, but I also, I mean, I always try to understand where uh, an opinion is coming from or where, Mm -hmm. when someone makes a a statement, especially a bold kind of statement, where is it coming from? What are the underlying, you know, motivations there? And this letter to me is very, it's very transparent. Maybe this is unfair. Maybe this is too cynical, but like, I think this letter could have been written by Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib. Like, it literally just takes the talking points of the progressive left, the anti-Israel progressive left, and just regurgitates it without saying anything that would make anyone in that camp uncomfortable. And if these people, to, to tie it together to the religious thing, these this is specifically from rabbinic students or people studying religious, you know, religious Jewish studies. If nothing that they're saying is like rocking the boat in any way to the political group that they're affiliated with, then there's something wrong there. That this is not, this is no longer to me coming from a religious place. It's coming from a progressive place that happens to be from people who are studying religion. Like the fact that they, that they transplanted the racial conflict in America directly onto Israel as if it's a one-to-one comparison um, is is one big red flag. The fact that obviously that they that they called it apartheid, another red flag, and the fact that as Jews and as people who literally are going into the profession of caring for other Jews and helping other Jews, to not even mention any kind of sympathy or empathy with the suffering of their brethren in Israel who are have rockets fired on them on a daily basis at that time and there were plenty of israelis jewish israelis who were killed and injured obviously specifically in that time and since israel's been founded and and before obviously not even expressing anything like that that gets into the avat yisrael that, that we can get into that was part of the critique when you have all those elements it's hard for me to take that seriously that letter and and the intentions of these people. It almost makes it too easy to reject it. If they would have put in a little bit right. more nuance, it would have been much harder for me right. to just reject it out of hand, but they actually made it easy in a way, unfortunately. It's it's interesting. It's interesting because I think that often I I, I find and I'm not I'm not this is this is not just about Israel. This is not this is I think in general. The the rhetoric and the language that I feel like I see over and over and that I do feel like I grew up with was right-wing Hasbara about Israel. I heard over and over about all of the positive things about Israel, the historical connections to between Jews and Israel. I never, ever, ever heard anything. And what I heard was completely, totally unnuanced stuff from the right. And what I feel like what I got from this letter was obviously it was short. It was, you know, several pages, but it was basically the exact same thing, right? It was very kind of like 
simplistic understanding of what's going on and who we should support and this is right and this is wrong and this is the oppressor and this is the oppressed yeah exactly exactly and i totally totally am with you on wait when i see that my instinct is to say like okay but you're you're making this so simplistic that i don't want to hear from you at all so when you see that same thing from the or maybe maybe actually you disagree with my assessment but do you feel like the right, like you see the same problems coming from the right that you get a totally one-sided view of. Like I look at things like, you know, Stand With Us or other Hasbara kind of like organizations. And I feel like the way that you're telling this story feels really untrue and slanted. It doesn't matter if the, the facts are technically true. You're not telling a complete story. And therefore, I don't feel comfortable aligning with you. I hear what you're saying. I think lack of nuance is is never a good thing, especially when it comes to talking about Israel. But I am going to push back on that analogy. I don't think it's a fair comparison because when Jews are talk are talking to Jews or teaching other Jews right. about Judaism and about Israel, the first thing that they say does not need to be criticism of the tradition and of the of the. The first thing, okay. How but, many years of Jewish education yeah, so and there, of Israel education yes, have we had? There should be something. Like, but when it, was the first time you heard about Area A, B, and C? I don't know. Uh, that's, I, I, I don't know I, exactly. I, when. I think it was in college classes for uh-huh. me. I don't think I ever. Heard, I've spent two years in Israel in seminary, living in the old city, and never had an understanding of like, yeah, like fine. The term apartheid is maybe an inappropriate term, but to talk about like different laws surrounding, like these yeah, things are my legitimate. Point, yeah, my, these my, things my, are complicated. I understand that. My my point was that when when Jews are telling, actually, you served in the army. You had to know these things. Well, yeah, I, obviously, I knew about it then. I'm trying to. Think, <laughs> did I hear ever hear it in high school or elementary school? Right. I don't know. Probably, right. maybe not. I'm not sure. I mean, we both went to Mariah. Mm-hmm. We went to different high schools, but. Um, what I was trying to say is that when when we are telling our own story to ourselves, in, whether that be in school or in youth groups or whatever it is, camp, while, yes, there needs to be somewhere in there, like, s- some nuance and some empathy of who else is involved in the story, I, I don't think it's fair to say we need to give equal time, for sure not, and like how much it's like it's complicated, but it's definitely not the same thing as saying when you're criticizing Israel, you need to at least put a little bit in there as a Jew saying that Jews are okay and Jews are not just murderous oppressors. Right. That's not the same thing as saying like when we're talking about our history and our peoplehood and our the, like the suffering that we've gone through through the millennia. You know, make sure you put right. in there like at so, least so half of it has to I, be about criticizing ask, Jews. I, I, I hear I hear everything you're saying, and I think I, I do even kind of agree with it. I'm, I'm let me ask you on the other side, right? Imagine this entire situation were happening with Palestinians, right? How would you feel about the way that they're framing the narrative? Yeah, this is something that's transposed the yeah, entire thing. For sure. This has come up in our, in our discussions. There's a book called Catch the Jew by Tovia Tenenbaum. Yeah. came out a few years ago. It was like a huge number one hit in Israel. It was also pretty popular in America in English. Um, and he has some, I think, really interesting ideas. And he says he would rather, this is extreme. I wouldn't agree with this, but he would rather his daughter, I don't think he has a daughter, but he would rather his daughter marry a proud Hamas uh, militant who identifies with his people and his cause than a Jewish person who is only critical of Israel and who defends Palestinians only, you know, because that person is just a traitor to his own people. He respects people who are loyal to their own people. I I think that's like 
a weird way to say it, but there's something to that. And um, actually, Yossi Klein Halevi said something similar when he was talking to us, which is that when a Palestinian person, even Rashida Talib, who who you know has Palestinian um, roots, when she um, criticizes Israel and and talks about the Palestinians, I do hear it differently than when Peter Beinart criticizes Israel and defends Palestinians because I respect family loyalty, I respect national loyalty. And I don't, I, you know what I mean? Like, because I have it and I respect it in other people. I might disagree with the conclusions they come to, but I do think there's a big difference. So if a Palestinian was talking to other Palestinians about their narrative and their story, and a lot of it had to, you know, criticize Israel, it was even anti-Semitic, I would disagree with it. I would think it's it's bad, it's dangerous, but I understand it much, much more than when Jewish people, Jewish religious studies people are saying the talking points that are identical to Rashida Tlaib's talking points, literally. So, so just to understand, right? One of the one of the the things I feel like I always grew up with, uh, as part of our Hasbara education about Israel, was like, oh, look at what they're teaching in these Palestinian schools. Look, they're teaching terrorism. Look, they're teaching anti-Semitism. Look, they're teaching about how evil Israel well, is. Well, yeah, it's when you see those, what they're teaching those plays, in their schools, those like yeah, exactly. play right. equivalents and, where and, they're giving every kid a toy gun. Yes, yeah, that's exactly. Very scary. Those things. Yeah, those things are scary. That's those an things extreme are awful. of this. That's, that's yeah, of different. course it is. I mean, at, at the same time, Moshevah definitely does, you know, talk, like army drills, okay, okay. right? The ten-year-olds, like, no, I'm saying, like, we when we hear those things that are happening at, with Palestinian kids, we think of that as like disgusting brainwashing, or I don't want to say we. I think of that as disgusting, brainwashing, okay. upsetting. I think they should be telling, yes, the Palestinian narrative, but also a much more complicated version of history, which includes both Palestinian rights to the land. Jewish rights to the land, what's happened in the last hundred years, but also what's happened in the last thousands of years, right? To believe that the Temple Mount has never belonged to Jews, that there was never a temple on it, I think is is not only bad because it's literally untrue, but bad because it makes you think that there is a single story. And there isn't a single story. There's a complicated story. Do you think, no, that's actually not problematic. They deserve to kind of like be teaching their history and that's totally fine. I hear what you're saying. The, yeah, when you're inciting violence, that's obviously a red line for me, and that doesn't. I don't care what your your peoplehood story is. If you're inciting violence against my people, I'm going to have a problem with that. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I don't. There's these buzzwords that that are like are you know Hasbara that has negative connotations now, even though it shouldn't. Like oh, it, I could change the language. No, it's not. Hasbara. Oh, I. I'm just. Well, why? Why should it I don't not know? Be I don't know. You didn't. Hasbara is propaganda. With, isn't propaganda bad thing? Yeah, exactly. But you don't have to call it Hasbara when you're learning about Jewish history and Zionism. But I'm saying we learned a fake version of history. We learned a fake version of history to get us to love Israel more because that was the goal. You're was saying not, it as if it was a malicious uh, plot. No, it, I'm not saying it was malicious. I'm saying they truly thought. Like I think that our teachers and in general educators who do Hasbara, and first of all, they call it Hasbara. So, like I think that they're doing it because they think like, oh, we want Rifki to love Israel, and if we give her a complicated story, she's gonna love it a little bit less, or okay. maybe she's let's, even gonna like go to the other side. Let's so, agree. Like, we need to make sure yeah. that we give her. Let's like, I, let's I, agree I, that there should be nuance. Let's agree there should be nuance in the education of Jewish youth, either if only just because they're gonna hear this sooner or later. So they, we may as well tell them about it so they know it's there. That's the minimum, maximum because right. it's actually important to know. Yeah. Let's agree. Let's agree to, on maybe to varying degrees that that's important. That should be there. Okay. But now back to this. <laughs> how do we how do we understand I don't know we should call it a win and go home. How okay. how do we understand this perspective and how seriously should we be taking it? You know, this article getting back to the article 
it's they specifically say the the author of the article says this is a minority. This is not the majority either of rabbinic students, although I think it's a mm-hmm. decent percentage of those schools. And definitely not a majority of the Jews in America. When you get to the Jews under 30 in America, it's a bigger percentage, but still definitely not a majority. I think, like I said, cynically, but I do think it's true, this is in line with what the New York Times type people want the reality to be. So they're going to promote it. I don't really see... uh, you know, nuanced, interesting articles about Jews who are more Zionistic. I also don't see, and maybe there are, please send them if if there are. I also don't see um, from the Palestinian perspective, people who are very uncomfortable, you know, Palestinian uh, students or religious students who are very uncomfortable with Hamas or with the way that their uh, government or people treat LGBTQ people in Gaza or Jews, how they talk about Jews or whatever, any of those things. That's not something that you see in the same way that you see these type of articles, but that that being what it is, I, I don't want to just dismiss it completely. I want to understand it, and I'm trying not to be incredibly cynical about it. But so one question that I had, and that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, like, is it what is the connection between how seriously should we take these people who are saying this is coming from my Judaism and this is actually connected to my religious beliefs? It, therefore, I'm criticizing Israel. Do we actually believe them? That since that they're sincerely saying that, and if they are sincere, which I want to say that they are, um, what does that mean? How do we understand that? So I think that's a really important question, and I think I, I agree with you that I tend to want to believe people. Like I want to take people at face value. You know, uh, to me, when I when I ask myself that question as I was reading the article, like, wow, they say that this being uncomfortable with Israel's actions is actually coming out of a deep spirituality and religious fervor, which is really interesting because we generally associate people who are more observant with being more pro-Israel, right? A lot of these things that, you know, are kind of like buzzwords and, you know, these these words are complicated, but I think it is kind of interesting. And I asked myself, like, what is it really, is it really true that these beliefs come out of feeling religious? And then I kind of took a step back and said, well, in general, I feel like so much of we want to think that so much of ourselves and our morality and our thoughts often come out of being religious. But I don't even know how true that it ever is. So it's hard for me to even answer. Well, I mean, it's hard for me to answer about these people in general because I don't know them, right? Maybe we can interview them at some point. But I think in general, I think it's a fair question for us to ask about ourselves in any question, right? One of the things that like I often want to think is like, oh, I'm a more, and we talk about this very often, I'm a more moral person because I'm religious. I want religion to be a force for moral good. So I want to believe that I am acting moral out of a sense of religious propriety. But if I decided tomorrow, you know what? Being an observant Jew, being a religious person, having a relationship with God, this is all crap. I'm done with all of this. Would I start cheating on my taxes? Would I be a little less kind to people? Would I give less charity? Would etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think so. I don't actually think you know what I believe. I, I don't think that I would be a different person in how I interacted as a moral being in this world. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I didn't exactly address the question because I do think that it's part of a larger question. Like, do I think that these people's connection to the Palestinian cause comes out of their religious fervor? I don't know how much I believe that 
anything that we do in the moral realm comes out of our religious fervor, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I guess it's... Or maybe it's yeah. just me. Maybe everyone else is better at this. Well, what is religious fervor? I I, I think it's... I mentioned that I, that I feel that this is really coming from a political place and it's the political camp that these people are in, which is the progressive or the woke or whatever you want to call it, camp. Um, it's funny. I saw some a friend of mine post on Facebook, like, I don't know if he, maybe he got it from somewhere else, the concept that we can very much imagine and think of people switching the synagogue that they go to because the synagogue didn't align with their politics. But it's harder to think of examples of somebody switching their political affiliation because it doesn't align with their synagogue's stance on on issues, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. Even for, there's there's something to that for sure, to varying degrees, I think, for different groups of people. But for this group, I would say, totally the politics outweighs the religion in in some ways at least and i would go a step further actually i have, Wait, what yeah. do you mean by outweighs right you, right so mean? so i have kind of a theory about this that i've been thinking about and tell me what you think it's a, it's a little you could say it's i don't know offensive or extreme but i think that um well a couple of things the the progressive movement and if you want to call it like the woke movement of, of the last number of years, maybe the last no decade. No one wants to call it that. Yeah. Only okay. right-wing people want to progr- use okay. the word woke. I don't want to use derogatory <laughs> words, and I'm not sure if that's derogatory or not. It can be. So let's say the progressive movement, it has a lot of elements of religion in it. Like a lot of these stances have become not political stances, but purely like moral stances, right and wrong. And it takes on a lot of the framework that religion and religious beliefs have where there are believers and there are heretics and if you disagree you're not just a political opponent you're evil you're basically a heretic and so the the religious language um has really increased when it comes to maybe politics in general in terms of like the morality of it but i especially uh, on the progressive end on the left wing end that's one piece of it and the other piece is that Another element of the progressive movement, I I would say, in the last number of years is that they really um, celebrate ethnic diversity and ethnic identity. So if somebody wants to affiliate and identify with that group and that movement and they have an ethnic identity, that ethnic identity is going to come to the forefront because it's going to be celebrated and it's going to give them more attention or credence, especially if the issue at hand relates to that identity. So with these um, rabbinic students, my claim is that they are firmly in the progressive world. They'll they'll practice and, and do their Judaism, but only as so so far as it aligns with their politics, not in any exa- not in any way to to rock the boat or be counter to that politics or to to be alienated from their who they want to be their peers. I mean, this is like such a classic story of Jews wanting to be accepted, being the perennial outsiders and just wanting to be accepted and saying what needs to be said in order to be embraced and accepted in those camps. And therefore, not only, you know, there's, there's a classic criticism of um, Israel critics, which I don't think is the most compelling argument. When people say like, why are you focusing so much on Israel? What about China? What about Russia? What about North Korea? There's all these human rights violations happening in the world. That might be like true on some level, but it's like, no, people are allowed to choose the causes that are important to them, especially if they're Jewish. If they're Jewish, they're going to care more about Jewish-related things in mm-hmm. Israel and, and things like that. Fine. I think a much, much stronger critique is, okay, so you're, you're choosing to focus on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Why are you 
only focusing on one side of that conflict? Why are you pretending that this is an unnuanced, binary oppressor and oppressed situation? So by writing that letter and only criticizing Israel and not mentioning Hamas, not, not saying any sort of um, even sympathy with the suffering um, Israelis in this story, I think they're just, like I said before, betraying their their affiliations and their intentions. And the religious element of it, I think, only goes so far as aligning with the religious element of their political movement. That's my So theory. it's interesting, Uri, because I feel like for so much of this episode, a lot of things that I lost you here. You were saying, yeah, you I, I cannot even tell you how much you've lost me on this. Do you agree that the progressive um, movement has religious elements that have increased? I believe that any strong passions have religious elements. I think even like the argument that you made of sort of like the so it's just like it's like religion in that, you know, not only do I believe very strongly, I believe that other people who disagree are evil. I I've never heard that coming from uh, coming out of religious like I don't even know. Like the ana- that analogy is so strange to me. Like I, I mean, it's not really Judaism, but other religions have the concept of of heretics and um, infidels. Yeah, for sure. So you're saying like other religions do that? You're, you made a claim. I mean, sorry, that's maybe the I main, misunderstood. The mainstream I, concept of religion is not Judaism. There's a small percentage that Christianity and Islam sure. is covers yeah, most of course. the world. Yes. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> and that's what I'm referring to. So okay. So you're not making. So you're not making the claim that uh, these particular people who wrote the letter or people reading who agree with the letter that they are that the that they have this religious fervor for Judaism and they have this religious fervor for progressivism and that those things are equated in some way your what is the claim maybe well, I not that they're equated. I'm saying I'm making a link between the two and I'm saying that one trumps the other the politics trumps but, the religion, uh, you, and then what do you connected. mean by Trump? Like, in what way does it trump? Like these people if, put on Towsonsville it every day. Yeah, They're exactly. No, it like- tr- Trump meaning if there is some sort of situation where there's a conflict between the two, the politics are going to win out every time. Well, Rifki, we could obviously, <laughs> I think, talk about this for a very long time. One thing that we don't necessarily have to get into, but it's it's almost trite because you hear it so much, but it's just, it was very glaring to me in this article. So many, I would say majority of the students that they quote are LGBTQ. One of them is, is, is has the pronouns of they, and it was interesting. They barely even explain it. They just call the person they and great, yeah. fine. It was just interesting. Um, and, you know, it's just that, that trite thing, but it's it's true and it's ironic that like as LGBTQ people, they are aligning with the side of a conflict that completely rejects their entire identity and they would not be safe in Palestine or Gaza, I don't think. Um, I'm sure there are individuals who, who, would, who would embrace them, but obviously not the, the culture and the society. And in Israel, they'd be totally fine and embraced in Tel Aviv or whatever. And it's just that's just ironic. But... The, the, I don't know. It feels like such a false binary. Like I don't think these binary. people are saying that they're not yeah. aligning with Hamas. That's just, not what they're saying. I didn't say they're Hamas. They're saying Israel should treat Palestinians better. They're not aligning with Gaza. All I'm saying is it's like, ironic. I think the irony is there and undeniable. But I, I wanted to ask you something. <laughs> I love when you say things are undeniable. <laughs> um, there, there, there are a lot of really interesting points in this article, and we can't get to all of them. But I know you love to talk about God and and uh, belief, and do we talk about it enough? Thank you. So they quote this sociologist, Shaul Kellner, and he says, American Jews are not that worried about how American Jews feel about God because God's not such an important religious symbol in American Jewish life. Israel and the Holocaust are. 
Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say that in in different contexts, mostly in a negative sense of like Jews, you know, or a modern Orthodox Jews have gone so crazy that they don't even care about God anymore. They don't care if you believe in God or not, but they do care if you believe in Israel or not, as if that's a bad thing. Do you think that's a bad thing? I think it's a very bad thing. Why? Because if religion is about making us impact the world in a better way, if it's a, if if religion is supposed to impact me and change my relationship with the world, right? And how does that happen? That happens through my interactions with God, with texts that I believe are divine, with my interactions with people, right? If if that is what religion is meant to be, this force that flows through me and makes and then I impact the world in a positive way, then Israel and the Holocaust, sure, they're elements of who I am, and they're elements of my history and my history and my culture, and all of these things impact who I am. But in a fundamental way, God is so much more, hopefully, going to impact the way that I, that I impact the world in a positive way. If mm-hmm. my role as a religious person is to be a conduit of morality in this world, that's going to come from God more so than from a political entity, even if it's a political entity that I love and cherish and has spiritual meaning, much more so than a political entity or historical fact that also directly and very heavily impacts me emotionally. Right. Well, it it might be semantics a little bit. What are your thoughts? Right. Because this statement just said God. It didn't say being a good person isn't as important as believing in Israel. You're bringing in the morality part. This was talking but, about. But the reason, the reason I think that God is more important in when we talk about what it is to be a religious person, right? Uh, an American Jewish person. The reason I think God is more important is because I think that. I mean, I don't need to repeat. Yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I, exactly I, yeah. what I just said. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't agree, and I think. Um, Yes, obviously being a good person is, is extremely important. Hillel said it's it, treating others like you want to treat yourself is the most important thing in the Torah. But in terms of God itself, like, that's actually a beautiful thing about Judaism, the way I understand it, that I think is, is different than Christianity and Islam, which is that action is much more important than belief for Jews. And belief in God, what is God, what is God's essence, like, that's something that, like, you think about late at night around the bonfire or whatever. It's important. But like Israel and the Holocaust, that is like survival. That's life and death. That is protecting ourselves, self-defense. Like that is much more important, not important. It's much more immediate and it's much more essential than theoretical, philosophical beliefs. And so when somebody says things like that, like obviously it's theoretical. Phrased, yeah, I, I, over here. I actually I think peoplehood and survival, these are things that are just more relevant and immediate than belief, which is much more abstract. And so I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think that's where these students have gone astray. They are doing these rituals or Jewish rituals, again, in only the ones in the way that fit their thing, like, you know, talked about a mikvah, but they push back on, on, uh, you know, the mikvah being primarily used by women um, on their menstrual cycle. So they, they do mikvah in other ways. They repurpose it to fit their, um, concepts of, of current progressive ideology. So they're into the abstract and the theoretical and the rituals, but they're less into the peoplehood and the continuity. The, the article actually belittles the concept of Jewish continuity in a way that I found offensive, as if it's like not a big deal or not something that should be focused on. Maybe that's just a difference of opinion, but I, I think that's what it comes down to. And the, the Israel and the Honestly, Holocaust... Honestly, I think, Uri, yeah. we should have had this discussion. Oh, well... We gave a taste of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I definitely disagree, but I, I understand where you're coming from. And I think I disagree 
less than I did five minutes ago. How's that? Good <laughs> I'll work. I'll take Uri. it. I'll take it. Yeah. Well, there's, a, right. there's a lot and, more and, in the article, and you should really read it for yourself. Read the response, read the letter, read the response to the letter. We'll include yes. all those links. Yes, all of these things. And of course, of course, of course, the conversation does not end with us. Please join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Tachas Podcast. And of course, shoot us an email. We want to hear your thoughts. Talking Tachas Podcast at gmail.com. If you haven't yet, please run to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, give us five stars, write an amazing review about our melodious voices. Please, 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 we want to hear from you. Thanks as always to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Topless. Bye, everyone. Bye, gesund.